Hey, it's me, Witchiller, and our eighth episode has a little different focus. Our guest is Laura Hall, who no doubt many of you will know from her work as an improvising musician on the U.S. version of Whose Line Is It Anyway? But most of you haven't heard her speak or had the benefit of her insight and unique perspective on improv, particularly musical improv. You'll get a little bit of the behind-the-scenes stuff on Whose Line, but you're really going to get a ton out of what Laura has to say about improv and the creative process generally. So let's get started with the Laura Hall episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Laura Hall, so excited to chat with you this uh, afternoon on the Improv Comedy Connection. Uh, everybody has seen your face on Whose Line, has heard your music. Uh, only so many have heard you talk about what you do, and uh, I'm really excited to, to dive into that. But can we set the table for those who might not know how you got into being an improvising musician as at least a part of what you do? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And it's like my favorite subject to talk about. So well, good. Know, I'm happy to. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started out wanting to be a musician, just a regular musician, just a musician, you know, and I was in music school in Chicago. I got, I was looking for a waitressing job and I ended up working as a waitress at Second City. But even then I wasn't like, oh, I want to be, I want to go into improv. It was a waitressing job that worked great with my college schedule. And then I, the, the musician there, Fred Kaz, was he's sort of the godfather of musical improv. And he kind of created the way that music interacts with improv. Uh, he was at Second City. He started, I think, in the mid-50s or something. You know what I mean? So he was, he was, he was the man. So I was a terrible waitress because I'd be like serving, you know, and I'd be like, oh, that was really cool. And he just did, oh, sorry, here's, you know. <laughs> um <laughs> And then I sort of slid into doing the touring company. I never had to audition because they knew me and they just knew I played. And it was sort of an easy transition. And I ended up finding it, like I said, I didn't, you know, when I was a little girl, I did go, someday I'll be an improv musician. <laughs> well, it wasn't even really a thing. It wasn't really a thing. Yeah, for one thing. I sort of just fell into it and discovered how much I loved it. At the same time, I was doing all sorts of other music. Um, I was still in music school, you know, I was finishing up music school. I was, I was playing in wedding bands. I was doing piano bar. I accompanied ballet classes. I was writing in original bands. You know what I mean? I was doing just everything and anything. And little did I know how valuable that would be for me as an improvising musician, that I had just done such a wide variety of things, you know? So, so you didn't even really try out? I didn't have, you know, this was the eighties. Okay. And like people to audition people didn't they didn't have the whole training center and you had to come up through the training center like my husband he was just like a guy off the street practically who auditioned you know he hadn't had his training there and because yeah. they so things were much more informal is my point and i they heard me play like at parties and that kind of stuff so they knew i could play okay. and then they also knew that i understood the the parameters of it because there's tons of really good musicians who don't necessarily get the parameters of how to play for improv. And what, I, well, <laughs> I know what those words mean, but I don't know how to describe what those parameters are from a musician's point of view. Okay. What do you think are those parameters? Well, obviously, like with acting improvisers, being super flexible is one that you have to be really comfortable mm -hmm. with being very flexible. You have to have a pretty solid um, sense of chord theory 
because you're basically writing songs on the spot. And on the musician end, that means you have to have a pretty solid sense of theory and structure, right. musical structure. And then you also have to be willing to throw it out the window because you don't know what's going to come out of your finger's mouth, right? Yeah. So it's like you uh, you have to be super flexible. And the other thing, and I, I say this with all love and respect, you're not the you're not the person out front. You're not the person that the audience is super aware of. And for a lot of musicians, they don't necessarily want to be in that mm -hmm. position. Just as a lot of musicians don't want to play music, do music like for, say, a, a play or a movie, because it's sort of the music is sort of secondary to the right. story in a way. Mm -hmm. And that that's true of improv. I know how much the music shapes it. The audience doesn't know that a lot of times. Mm -hmm. The audience, it's like just as a movie score really shapes the movie, but the audience is rarely aware of it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So do you think uh, the attitude is, in some ways, would would be almost a common characteristic of a, a good improvising musician? I think so. I think that's one of them, is, the, is that attitude, a, a huge amount of flexibility, and then a willingness to do, you know, what we call an improv, the follow the follower, to both lead and follow. And sometimes that's hard too, because yeah. we want to lead <laughs> and there are times when we have to lead. And then there's other times when we have to follow and to do, and it happens sometimes on the, in a, you know, mm -hmm. in a split second. And so you just have to be, uh, you have to be willing and able and you have to exercise that muscle. So it's not just like, oh, you're a good piano player. It's, it's all of that. And, and, and you have to be super connected to those improvisers. And, and in a way, it's that ability to connect. And then, mm -hmm. and then, like you said, the sort of the willingness, the attitude to say, this is, this is what my role is that makes for a, a good improv musician. And then, of course, you have to know how to play your instrument. There's that too. <laughs> and, and you said it was Fred Kaz was the, the sort of the godfather of improvising musically. Yes. What did he teach you? You know, I mostly taught from him. There were a few times when I actually had the honor of getting to sit down and have him show me things. But okay. most of what I got was from just listening and being really aware. Mm -hmm. And, and I, w I think what I learned the most from him was the, the rhythm of the show and that the music. And, and so what I'm talking about is not just song, like on Whose Line Is It Anyway, basically we're just accompanying songs, right? But in a live improv show, you're also doing underscore like mm -hmm. in a movie. You're also doing connective pieces. If you're doing a short form, you're connecting game to game. If you're doing a long form, you're connecting scene to scene. If you're doing a big long form, like a musical, you're create, you can even create like thematic lines for different uh, characters and stuff. So there's way more that can be done by an improv musician. Sometimes people, all they think of is, is whose line, which is such so specific in that we're only doing song games. But what Fred taught me was the way that the music can so shape the whole rhythm of the show, yeah. the energy, the rhythm. Um, it is sort of like the subliminal, it's the seventh improviser. It's the, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When when you talk about shaping the whole improv show, there's potentially a push and a pull to that. There's potentially a leading and a following to that too, I would think. Most definitely. Yeah, so it's not that there is a goal that you would have or that he would have had to embody a show with a certain uh, flavor to it musically. Right. It, but it it is the musician is making offers 
justice the effort. Right. Effort. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. There is a give and take to that. So can we go back to that time when you were at Second City? Second City certainly is a place that improv is a huge part of, but it's also improv to sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, were you doing both improv and sketch shows? Yes. And sometimes they would be, you know, combined within the show. Um, actually, at Second City, I never did any straight up where the whole show was improvised. Though. So it was always a combination. So I, I, when I was out with the touring company for several years, and the touring company typically wouldn't do your own sketches that you generated, mm-hmm. you would be doing like greatest hit. So that was a great learning tool about what's been written in the past and been right. successful in terms of sketch and the shape of it. And then those shows would have some games sprinkled within it. And then I went up to the ETC stage and opened a show there. I think it was the second show of the ETC stage. That's how long ago it was. Mm-hmm. And there we were developing our own material. We were using oh, improv okay. and we would develop our own material and then, you know, into sketches. And then in those shows, you would do sketches. And then afterwards, you do the improv set. And that would be fully improv. So it was a little of both. And then you moved to California mm-hmm. when? Um, when would that have been? 91. And um, and when we moved here, I was like, uh, I think I'm done doing improv because being an improv musician is such a niche within a niche. You know what I mean? Like, right. like I want to do more yeah. further. So I, was, I took some classes at UCLA Extension and like film scoring. I was playing with bands. I was doing all those other things that I was interested in doing. And then a few years later, I got a call. Hey, do you want to audition for this? And I was like, I'm doing improv again. <laughs> yeah. And that was, and his line brought me back. So that was the first incarnation of the U.S. version yes. of the show, right? Yes. And so you were right there from the beginning of that reboot here. Correct. And we did those, we did six episodes with the British host, uh, Clive, and then American actors. Mm-hmm. And- and we shot it here in the States. And I think the intention was then they, they mm-hmm. tried it on American uh, test audiences to see how they liked it. And they, they mm-hmm. really responded well. And then it's like, well, now if you add Drew Carey, who was, you know, his show was the most popular show on ABC. He was really well known. Now if you add him, it's, you know, it's got to go well. Kind mm-hmm. of what thinking. Yeah. I don't remember seeing the episodes with Clive Anderson on the U.S. base. I do remember the British version, but did those air as well? They did. They did air. Okay. And um, although not, I can't remember when they aired, but they yeah. have aired because I know people have, I've got, I'll get emails once in a while, like, wait a minute, were you in England? But it looks like the American set. But yeah, trying to figure, figure all that out. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to chat with you about was sort of how those uh, tapings go. But I did get a little inkling that there is a musical setup before a show as well. So how do you prep for the musical games that are going to be part of a a taping for a Who's Line um, set? So for the styles-driven games, which is Typically, greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the song to a audience member, but most typically it's greatest hits that are really style driven. And you know, in the beginning, the styles would be blues, mm-hmm. country, R and B, you know, hip hop, and uh, and so you could you could just pull those, and it was just me, right? So I could just pull those out of my hat, so to speak. But as we got going, 
the style started getting a lot more mm -hmm. specific. Yeah. And then also we added Linda. So now everything's got sort of like new levels of complexity. So now they, we would, what we would do is we would have a workshop where we would just try out a whole bunch of styles. And so we would, Linda and I would have to do tons of research ahead of time because literally like they would be like Scandinavian hip hop or they would be a specific artist, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, or Russian folk metal was the one where I went, what? That's a thing? It is a thing. It's actually a genre. So now you're not just going, oh, heavy metal. Now it's Russian folk metal. Right? Or you're not just going, oh, it's pop. Now it's Rihanna. You have to do some research to try and figure out like what makes it specifically sound more like that artist. So we do tons of research. And when we start the uh, like a weekend of work, so say we have two tape days, we'll start out with a list of 75 styles. Mm -hmm. So we can make sure that we've done our research so that if they, if indeed they do call Russian folk metal, We've got an idea what it is. And we've probably picked out, we've picked out, okay, we'll use my drum machine. You'll play guitar. I'll play bass with my left hand, right? So we've got some mm -hmm. some basics of the logistics because we, we have a little more production value than your average improv show, right? So now we, you know, so Russian folk metal, I'm playing bass in my left hand. My right hand is playing little folky melodies on an accordion patch over a heavy metal track. It's crazy. Sure. But that, you know what I mean? But like, that's what makes it style work. So then we have that sort of general layout because we know that it could possibly show up this weekend. So that's our prep is that we have, we yeah. have to have like all 75 of those prepared. And then they might throw a generic one too, right? Blues. Great. Right. So if you get country Western, you know, country. Right. Western. And it's just easy to do. You just call a key and it's just easy to do. Right. And yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that's our, that's our prep. And I have listened to more genres that I, half of them I didn't even know existed. But the problem is if they go too deep, the audience doesn't have the reference level either. That's what we've discovered. If you go into a subgenre of right. EDM, there are some people who will go, oh, my God, they're doing teddy bear or whatever. Like, there's all these genres that like have crazy names and they show up and then they disappear, right? Oh, my God, they're doing teddy bear. <laughs> well, for one thing, by the time the show airs, it might not yeah. even be a thing anymore. And like one person will know what it is. So we actually sort of learned by doing all of this and going, making really deep dives into some genres. Like, oh, people just don't know what it is so it doesn't get any value for the audience yeah so the research that you do to me sounds like it is uh, akin to the research that i feel that i need to do from time to time on just sort of general pop culture Definitely. references and some of those some of those will be kind of musical based but based on what you've said without saying it it sounds like it's a lot more than just listening to things in Russian folk metal. I'm more familiar with Russian speed metal, but I'll take your word for it that there are some things that are it's consistent with, the, with that genre. So, <laughs> so, so what do you what do you do in your research process to feel like you've got that genre down? Well, it's a huge amount of analysis, which sort of goes back to this music theory idea. If you go into, if you are wanting to go into a lot of styles with improv. So it's really like listening. So I might pick, you know, I'll go on iTunes and find out what's really popular within that genre. Like, right. Cause it'll show you what gets the most hits and I'll, and, and I'll download four tunes. Yep. Actually the, the folk metal, probably Linda did it because it was guitar driven. We divided up. 
for the most part. But anyway, I, yeah. So you download maybe mm -hmm. four different tracks and you just listen, you listen to them with an analytical mind. What's in common? Well, they're all blazing fast. Okay. <laughs> There's one thing. What, what's common rhythmically? Mm -hmm. What's common instrumentally? Oh, they all have your typical heavy metal guitar going na 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 for parts of it, right? Okay, great. Um, but then this also has this weird, mm -hmm. like literally accordions noodling folk melodies over it in this particular genre. Okay, so that's your instrumentation, and they all have that in common. What kind of drum grooves do they have in common? Or you know what I mean? Or which one seems the most usable for us? So you're analyzing like the rhythmic structure, yeah. the harmonic structure, the instrumentation and arrangement. Mm -hmm. And then you're sort of throwing it all in a pot so that you can then be making up your own based on these elements, right? Because like, because metal doesn't have major seventh mm -hmm. chords in it, right? So you're not, you. so you're going to, you're going to know, <laughs> you're going to know what kind, in fact, a lot of metal doesn't even have a third in the middle. It's just the rhythm of fifth, right? So you, 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 you know what kinds of chords work, you know mm -hmm. what kinds of chord progressions work, you know what kinds of instrumentation, what kinds of rhythmic things. And then you're sort of doing a mashup and kind of then somehow coming up with something of your own to play. So if you didn't have, a, if you didn't have a Linda Taylor, then would you not have some of those genres on your list? Most definitely. Because I have this yeah. huge flexibility having such a incredibly capable guitar player. And she also plays banjo, bass, a little bit of keyboards. You know right. what I mean? She can play acoustic. She can play electric. She can rock her head off. She can also do pretty finger picking. You know what I mean? Like she is such a versatile musician and she didn't come from an improv background, but she is like mm -hmm. so versatile and um, and also produces a lot. So she has an ear for how is a song hold together? What make, you know, how does something mm -hmm. hold together? What's the sound of it? So between us, I feel like we're sort of unstoppable because, <laughs> because we have so much, we have so much instrumentation available to us and stuff. Right. Well, especially given how much is guitar versus keyboard driven. I mean, that covers a lot of the waterfront. Exactly. Most definitely. And if you're doing an improv show and you just have a piano and they call heavy metal, you, you know, you'll do your best to get by, but it's just, you're only going to get so far with it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So the things that I've learned about metal would, would hold me in good stead. But the fact is it's that instrument. It's that really distorted guitar that makes us go, Oh, that's metal. You know what I mean? It's a yeah. Funny yeah. No synthesizer has gotten all the way home on. Right, guitar. exactly. It, it's so interesting. Part of what the yeah. what it feels like the game is as a as an improv musician is what will trigger for the singer and the audience. What will trigger for them? Oh, that's that's heavy metal. Oh, that's Rihanna. Oh, that's country. Like, and you have such a mm -hmm. short amount of time to do it because you literally have like eight bars before Wayne's going to start singing. So, what's going to trigger for them? That sort of instant mm -hmm. something that makes them go, oh, that's Bruce Springsteen. Oh, that's, you know, whatever. It's just a, it's a very interesting game. You have to mm -hmm. sort of reduce everything down or get to its core, I guess. Yeah. So that's what you're doing as a musician. What is the other side of that in terms of how the improviser is prepping for what it is that you end up serving up musically? 
Well, certainly a singer like Wayne, who is, Wayne is an incredibly widely versed singer, and he also puts a lot of time and energy into studying different singers, different styles, different genres, even, you know, that like from, you know, ragtime to Cardi B, you know, like he's got very wide knowledge of musical styles. And so sometimes if it is going to be a specific artist, if, if they want Beyonce, then they'll give him a heads up so that he can work on his Beyonce impersonation. Because he's now he's kind of being asked to do an impersonation. Mm-hmm. It's not just mm-hmm. contemporary pop or R&B or whatever you want. You know what I mean? Right. It's, um, it's specifically Beyonce. Now, he doesn't know when it's going to show up in the show. He doesn't know what the subject matter will be. You know, he doesn't know any of that, but he, has, he does have the heads up to work on that impersonation. But then some of them, some of them will just be surprises to them. You know what I mean? Especially, again, if it's going to be like, oh, we'll throw reggae in. Yeah. He's got reggae in. You know what I mean? And, and you're not asking him to do a specific. Well, one of the things that I think uh, improv groups kind of dream about is having an improv musician uh, available to them. We have in our Dallas troupe an improvising uh, keyboardist, and he plays some other instruments as well. We don't have that mm-hmm in uh, Milwaukee or Atlanta, and we're very envious of that. But we also haven't figured out how to find these uh, <laughs> these unicorns out right. there who can do all of those things musically, at least on some level. What advice would you give to an improv group that wants to bring in a musician to be a part of their experience? So first of all, um, uh, oftentimes a musician comes out of someone who's already doing the improv. Right. Or, you know, so sometimes uh, troops will say, well, you know, Joe plays guitar. Mm -hmm. Maybe he would want to do it. And so sometimes that happens really organically. What's great about that is if they've been already studying improv, they know the parameters of improv. And now they're bringing their musicianship to something they Mm -hmm. already know those parameters. So that can be a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. Another great place to look is at colleges and universities, because you oftentimes find musicians who are still sort of open and flexible and like, I'll try that. But then you really have to workshop with them. You can't um, just say, oh yeah, come do our show Saturday, right? Mm -hmm. You really need to workshop with them. And also uh, the other thing I would say, the big thing is a lot of times people go, well, I can't do all those styles. Right. You know, I can't, I can't do Russian folk metal, (laughs) but don't, then don't play styles games or, or limit the styles. Let the, let a caller call the styles. If you're comfortable with blues, country, and reggae, right. have the caller call it. Don't ask the audience for style. But styles games are only just one small part of it. So if you don't feel comfortable with that, don't worry about it, especially right. in the beginning. You mentioned that at the beginning of Whose Line, the styles were more simple styles or um, kind of core styles. Then it grew from there. Was that just because you felt like... We've done enough of those core styles we want to branch out, or were there other reasons that you expanded? No, I think that was I think that was exactly the producer's thinking. Like, okay, we've done reggae, so now let's make it be Bob Marley, and then see what's slightly different mm-hmm. about that. Or we've done R and B that's generic, but there's lots of different branches. You know what I mean? Like, you, there's lots of different branches you could do mm-hmm. contemporary R and B. You could do uh, anyway. You know. Um, so I think it really was so that it just didn't feel like we were doing the same handful over and over. Um, but most of the time, if you do a live show and you're asking for styles, people will call out the generic ones. They won't say, they won't say Cardi B. They'll just say, 
hip hop. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll, they tend to. But, um, and the other thing, I will just say this is there's not many places that train the musician side, but there are a few, like IO in Chicago does, I think maybe like once a year, they do a training specifically for musical directors. Second City Toronto, I know, does one. So there are places if you want to get trained. And then I also will plug my book, mm -hmm. which is called The Improv Comedy Musician. And it's written sort of exactly with that in mind, because I run into that all the time, people saying, well, we have a musician who says he'll try it, but we don't know how to tell him what we want. <laughs> we don't know how to tell him how to do it. So it's the musician can read it, but also the actors and the directors can read it. Right. And it helps them have some kind of common language, some communication skills. Because typically the actors really have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. they only know if it doesn't work. If it feels like I couldn't follow what you were playing, I couldn't figure out when right. to come in, right? That's the only thing, the only sort of feedback we ever get. Right, that's true. So to be able to sort of communicate and understand what the musician is thinking about is really valuable. You mentioned the book. You also teach with your husband, Rick, who you mentioned earlier was part of the, the actor side of Second City. Uh, that's where you guys met, right? Yes, in the touring company. When you teach music improv, you're teaching mostly to the stage improvisers as opposed to the musical improvisers. Is that right? Yes, we're uh, we're teaching the actors, the actors singing side of it. Yes. And every once in a while, we'll have a musician uh, who wants to come and sit in and sort of learn from watching and that experience. But primarily, it's the actors. And I feel like part of why we're a great teaching team is because he is an actor improviser. So he tends to be more conscious of character, relationship, that more the acting side. And I'm more aware of the musical side, melody, you know, rhythmic stuff, harmonic stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And so we sort of bring these two different perspectives that both have import when you're doing song improv. So when you have a workshop for improvisers, and assuming it is the first time that you and Rick are teaching a musical improv workshop with them. Where do you start? What kind of foundation do you lay in these workshops? Well, it's interesting because we we do always with every workshop, we're kind of playing it by ear to see where the group is. is. But mm -hmm. we always start with like some really basic vocal warm-ups to get everyone comfortable with singing. And we'll have everyone singing in a group. We don't want to start right out with like, here's your big solo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we have everybody singing in a group. So we're getting comfortable all singing together. We're getting comfortable and we'll just we'll do some games about making up melodies and singing harmonies and just sort of kind of simple. We'll do a line at a time song with almost every group. So mm -hmm. you just now you have um, you just have one line of a story to keep going. But you're listening, you're tracking, and when you're not singing your line, you're singing background vocals. So everybody's just getting a lot of singing time. But, you know, the truth is that for a lot of people, there's a lot of fear around it, about around music improv. Even people who might be really solid improvisers, the thought of singing can be, you know, singing in public can be scary. And then there's people who are the other way, sure. who are comfortable singing in public. Oh, I did musical theater all my life. But the thought of improvising, making up lyrics can be overwhelming. So mm -hmm. a big, huge part of it is creating a really safe environment where it's like, we're all just going to try this. 
You know what I mean? Like, we're all going to try it. Yeah. You're, you're safe here. No one's recording it. We're all just going to give it a go. And, um, and that usually, you know, helps people. So a big part of it is helping people relax and feel comfortable. We'll, um, sometimes we'll sing in gibberish. So then they don't have to think about the lyrics yet. Right. So we're, in a way, we're sort of separating out some of the elements of song improv, you know, in terms of the, of the melodies, the staging, the singing in front of people, the singing of background vocals. The great thing is if you're singing and you're in an improv group, your other players can be your backup. And it takes so much pressure off. So we sort of work on all that stuff before you're really sort of like out front singing a solo. I do remember taking a workshop with our accompanist in uh, in Dallas, Jay, and uh, he had us do gibberish songs. And the freedom that comes without without having to plot out the words made you feel a lot more confident in your ability to craft musical lyrics when you actually were right. using uh, the language. Right. So I think one of the challenges could be even if you have a supportive improv group, if everybody is thinking about those uh, same things, then people aren't as present. So it does take time working on that together. And like you said, creating that safe space. Mm -hmm. Right. Audiences always respond pretty well to musical improv. There's just something magic about it. So all kinds of reasons to do it. Right. You have developed a resource which uh, has a, a kind of two CDs, or you can download them, uh, Improv Karaoke. Can you talk a, just a little bit about that? Then I've got a question or two for you on it. So it is, there's a two CD set, and then that's volume one, and then we also did a volume two. And it's tracks for people to do song improv too. And it came out of people often asking me for tracks can you send me a track of the hoedown or a track of Irish drinking song, which legally I can't, it's in my contract that I can't because those are the property of the show. Right. But I was like, but I can send you a track mm -hmm. of something you can sing to, right? So then I started doing it and then I was like, oh, and now I could do a bunch of different genres. So my friend Luke Hannington and I started doing genres. We made up a bunch of tracks. We were sending them out to people sort of informally, but people would be like, I'm not quite sure how to get started with them. So then we were like, okay, let's make this a real thing. So we turned it into a CD. So there's the tracks of the different styles, but then we also do, uh, Rick and I do a tutorial and then we do demos. So we just had a bunch of friends in our studio, uh, Keegan-Michael Key and Dan Castellaneta, Kathy Kinney, Ron West, mm -hmm. and then they did demos. So one CD is the tutorials and the demos. The other CD is just the tracks for you to do your own, make up your own songs too. And so people use it if they don't have a musician, they use it either to work mm -hmm. out or some people use them for shows even, you know, if they, if there's just no musician around, but they want to do, they want to do song improv. And a difference between having the live keyboardist, of course, is that you're going to be uh, locked into that, um, right. just the, right. the run of the song, right? How often are you, I don't know if you can quantify this or not, but how often are you looping back uh, to provide some additional time? Like in, you mentioned the game Hoedown, it's not uncommon that it seems like you've got to do a bar or two to give that person, right. you know, right. in, into the song. 
Right. Is that is that something that happens most of the time or not? I would say most of the time that you, yeah. for whatever reason, an actor's not ready to, you know, like, especially say it's a group number and one person has finished a verse and now someone else is going to come forward and do a verse, but they're not quite ready either because of the staging, right? People are moving or they just didn't, oh, it's my turn mm -hmm. or whatever, you know? And so you're kind of looping around. I describe it as it's like jumping rope. Like I will just come back and get you. Just don't panic. <laughs> because sometimes people will be like, ah, mm -hmm. and they start right. to sing right. like in a place that's not at all a musical place, right? Because they panic and then I'll catch up with them. But yeah. it's way better if they can wait. And a lot of times it's just one or two bars. Right. If they can just wait till the spot to enter. But if they right. don't, I, I always have their back. And it just happens sometimes. But that kind of stuff happens all yeah. the time. Yeah. And I think a lot of musical directors are like, we have to stop doing that. We can't ever do that. They're, like they see it as a mistake. I always see it as like the actors have so much stuff mm -hmm. going on and so much that they're processing that if what they need is an extra couple bars to, to get ready or something, or they sing a instead of an eight bar phrase, they sing a nine bar phrase. It's not ideal. And, right. and you go on and, and it never flusters mm -hmm. me. It never makes me like, ah, why did he do that? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, stuff happened. But it, and it, it does mm -hmm. happen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, I have a question for you on the, the lyrical, the improvised lyric aspect of it. Rhyming is often a part of improvised right. lyrics, not always, but often. Do you think it makes a difference if you think about the first rhyme, the A, versus thinking of the B in the rhyming? And by that, I mean, as if you have a sense of within this suggestion, I want to rhyme the word right. stethoscope. Good luck. Uh, you can rhyme it. <laughs> First, yeah, I know that was not necessarily a good <laughs> but no, one. No, right. Which is then you panic, right? Actually, it's a fantastic um, rhyme word, and if you can do it, it will get huge response, right? right? Because it's such a specific yeah. word. But right, so say you've got that, like you go, okay, I'm gonna. We're singing about being doctors. We're like, especially a game like a hoedown, right? Right. I want that's called the target rhyme. I want my target rhyme to be stethoscope. Then you got that's going to be your your the second of the right. So it'll be set up rhyme. The rhyme will be stethoscope. So yeah. you could think, you know, Pope, rope, hope. Oh, hope is a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. Right. There's something you could use with hope. Uh, I hope, you know, I want to be a doctor. This is what I hope someday I'll have my own stethoscope. Right. So you kind of are working your way into the word backwards. Does that make sense? It does. That's what people who are really good at it can do. Not, But it, it actually, I think for most people, a lot of times thinking of that rhyme word and heading towards it is a better way to go than I'm just going to start singing and hope a rhyme word shows up. Does that make sense? Well, I think so. But just uh, maybe spit it back to make sure I am tracking with you is that when you have, I used A or B, you, you use the word target rhyme. And so if you've got a target, that means you're going to put it on the B side, the second uh, part of it. And then, right. um, and then try to, to grab onto that word. And it strikes me that if I have a word like stethoscope, I probably don't uh, as readily go towards hope, cope, 
whatever, I try to think of something that rhymes ethoscope <laughs> more often than right. just oh, right? So right. simplify it at the beginning. Oh, for sure. And that's part of why a multi-syllable word can like tangle you up. Like if you're doing a setup rhyme game, like like Irish drinking song, right? Where one person mm -hmm. It's doing the setup and another person is doing the rhyme. Yeah. I wouldn't want to set someone up with stethoscope because your brain would be like, ah, three syllables. Oh, what do I do? And then the moments pass. Right. But if I set you up with the word hope, you could rhyme cope. You know what I mean? You could rhyme a single yeah. syllable word or you could use stethoscope and you would look like a rock star. Right. Right. But so you want your setup to be simpler. And then here's also just, I'll just give you a little bit of education about this. When you're talking okay. about rhyme schemes, you don't, you don't, the setup isn't A and the rhyme B. Like a game like Hoedown, it's called A-A-B-B. So that's telling right. you that the first right. two rhyme and then the second two rhyme. That's why it, it confused me just a little bit. Uh, yeah, and, right, right. And typically with a game like Hoedown, which is a rhyming game, right? You got to rhyme. There's no way around it. You're, you'll put your target rhyme will be your second B. So mm -hmm. people who are good at it, the Wayne Brady's of the world, the Brad Sherwood's, the, you know, mm -hmm. tend to head towards that target rhyme. The first rhyme, they don't worry about too much. You make a super easy one. I am a doctor. I do it all the day. I am a doctor. I do it anyway. Right. It almost doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. They've done a super simple setup and rhyme, and then they're going to get their they're going to get their payoff in their B setup right. and rhyme. So, uh, so that's sort of the strategy that people oftentimes use. But it can get you way in your head, which is partly what's tricky about rhyming is, you know, our whole thing with improv is we're trying to flow. And then mm -hmm. we get we can get way in our heads because, uh-oh, I just used, you know, decaf as a setup word now what uh giraffe and now there's a giraffe mm -hmm. in your song for no reason you know what i mean like right. we can right. get so wrapped up in those rhymes well it doesn't help too if it feels like you just grabbed the first rhyming word that passed by in your right. head it looks like a stretch and it is and and it can really derail if you're trying if if you're trying to tell a story you know what i mean it can really derail yes. the the story that you're trying to say, you may have rhymed, but it might not make any sense, or it might be like, what? And then do you, do you deal with the giraffe that you just introduced to your song, or do you just ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen? So it's like right. you, you can get yourself in a really tricky position. My right. general rule of thumb is that if you're singing like as a character in something, so you're doing a herald, and now your character sings, or you're improvising a musical, or you're, you know, you're doing a scene that just turns into a song. The rhyming is much less important. And if the rhyming derails you, you actually can just not rhyme or rhyme some mm -hmm. of the time. And and let it go if it if it does make you like, what did I just sing? I have no idea what I sang because I was so busy trying to rhyme truck without saying a bad word or whatever. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. But you can, you know, you can work that rhyming muscle just like anything else. There's lots of games. And right. when we do rhyming games, when Rick and I teach, we teach, we'll, we'll work on character-driven stuff, you know, what I call more organic or character-driven songs. And then we'll mm -hmm. also teach specific rhyming games. I like to use Irish drinking song because it's a set-up rhyme game, setting each other up. So it's more of a team game You're in the way that right. you set each other up. 
but you know, there's exercises that can help you work on that rhyming muscle. And then if you can, you know, there are really great, Wayne Brady can improvise a song that's more character driven and has great rhymes because he's Wayne Brady. But the rest of us humans, <laughs> you know, we might want to let go of the rhyming a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I know that you have all of these resources on uh, improv, your workshops, the improv karaoke at laurahall.com. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to at least talk for a minute or two about Laura Hall, the musician. And for the past 10 years, uh, you have had a group called the Sweet Potatoes that uh, you've toured with, kind of a folksy Americana, kind of Russian folk metal without the <laughs> Russian or the metal. <laughs> Um, but uh, you're transitioning from from that. So what is Laura Hall, the musician, in this period of transition? What are the things that you're thinking about and what's ahead for you as you pursue that sort of next thing musically? Yeah, and that's been an interesting transition because we were together for a long time. And I did a lot of the writing for that band. So now it's been interesting because I'm focusing, I'm working on some of my writing for me as the as a solo artist and kind of mm -hmm. I haven't done that in a really long time so it's an interesting it's been interesting thinking like so what does that look like what does that sound like who am I as the solo artist now so I feel like I'm taking the mm -hmm. very baby steps of that and enjoying the writing and enjoying the that sort of exploring that but that's definitely in the very beginning steps. It's not like I'm booking booking gigs at this point by any means. Is the style different? Uh, it's similar. It's similar. I think some of the subject matter maybe is different. And also, you know, I, I grew up in Chicago, so I had a little more. I had, you know, you grew up with blues in Chicago. And so yeah. I'm sort of exploring not straight up blues, but a little more of that blues, my blues background, I guess. I just feel like I'm kind mm -hmm. of casting around to a lot of different things. You know, you never know. I may make mm -hmm. a Russian folk metal album next, but uh, we'll have to see. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, well, I'll put the link to that in the show. There you go. Page, uh, when it's released. <laughs> but I am just. I feel like I'm sort of experimenting, and I'm and I'm really enjoying it. It's. I sometimes I'm like, if I were a brand new artist starting out, and I'd never you know, recorded anything or done anything, what would I be writing right now? And that's sort of a fun game mm -hmm. to play at this point. Yeah. So that's, that's where I am with that. And then I'm always doing a, a variety of things. You know, I write, I write stuff for my church. I play in the praise band and I write stuff for the band sometimes and do arrangements. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that. I'm working on a series of um, piano music for church for like preludes and stuff, but for, for musicians, for church pianists who only know how to read and don't know how to be flexible. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Because you run into that in churches a lot. So, it's sort of bringing some of my improv skills into helping some of, into helping those musicians be able to be more flexible musicians. Oh, so if walking grandma down the aisle takes a lot longer than you budgeted for how to keep that rolling. Exactly. <laughs> Is that what you mean? Exactly. No? That's exactly okay. it. So it's, I, I'm doing these arrangements that are sort of modular so that, because right, you never know how long communion 
going to take, for example, or how long, whatever the, oh, extend the prelude a little bit longer. The, you know, the pastor's mic isn't working, right? All that stuff. It's all improv, really, <laughs> you know, and, um, and or the sermons dragging. So now so, <laughs> play them off. Stage right. So, or, cut, or <laughs> right. So cut it shorter. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on yeah. these arrangements that are sort of modular so that you can jump, like jump to the ending or go back anyway, because I literally have been in church services where like someone's playing something beautiful while they're serving communion. They finish, the musician can't figure out how to get to the end. And she just stopped in the middle of a measure, just stopped playing. And it was like, you yeah. couldn't even figure out how to, even if it had taken four measures. Go back two bars or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To like cut to the end. You couldn't figure that out. You just were like, ah, panic. <laughs> so I'm trying to create something <laughs> to help with that idea of being able to be more flexible. It's, I'm sort of uniquely positioned in that I'm a church musician and I'm an improviser. I, I may be the only one in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly a rarer <laughs> breed than uh, the improv musician. But hopefully uh, th this conversation inspires someone else. And I know your workshops will. I appreciate those thoughts about, you know, how to encourage or seek out uh, those kind of things. Um, your book is, is very interesting. I'm anxious to find a way to uh, have time with you and Rick in one of your workshops because I know they would be time very well spent uh, for anyone who wants to include music in their improv. And I just don't know why you wouldn't. I, I agree. I think it makes it so much better. I mean, I know I'm biased, but... Yeah. <laughs> 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 but that's okay. That's all right. Well, Laura, thank you again for uh, being a part of this episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. And let's stay in touch. Yes, definitely. Thank you. You got to hear a bit about Laura's book, The Improv Comedy Musician, in this episode. That book will go into some additional depth on musical improv for sure. And as Laura mentioned, it is useful for both the musician and the actor in improv. Those of you who have had the opportunity to work with an improvising musician know that it not only adds a dynamic to a show, but it's also an opportunity to learn the leading and following and improv in a different way. The environment created by the musician is, as Laura said, an offer in and of itself, and it can really shape a show. Another thing that I appreciated in the conversation was the humility and other-centeredness that is a thread throughout Laura's approach to the art, and that doesn't diminish the impact that the musician's role can have. She's a real pro, but she maintains an improviser's mindset despite her success and skill level that is really quite laudable. There will be links to some specific resources from Laura on the episode page on ImprovedComedyConnection.com, but you can find just about anything you'd be interested in by going to laurahall.com. There's also a schedule of the classes she and her husband Rick teach on that site as well. I hope you found this episode and the podcast generally to be useful to you. If it has, please do spread the word, rate, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have an idea as to how this could be more useful, or you have a great idea for a topic or a guest for a future one, let me know. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. So your feedback is very much appreciated. I've loved being your host on this episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. 
My name again is Whit Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fish Sticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media, at Whit Schiller, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm at the early stages of putting together a board on cheesy motivational pictures on Pinterest, so look for that as I seek to help you get through your day with an extra spring in your step. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.